Welcome to the What A Word podcast, a podcast where you can be encouraged, inspired, and uplifted. Join us weekly as we have real conversations with real people overcoming real obstacles. We guarantee you that as you tune in weekly, you will join us in saying, wow, what a word. And now here's your host, Ryan Thank you for joining me for this installment of the What A Word podcast. I am honored, as I always say, to be a conduit for conversations that inspire. And today is no different. My guest is Pastor Edsel B. Cadet, and we've packed a lot into a short space of time. But I want you to think about three questions that will invariably come up during this discussion. When to pivot, when to give up, and when to persist. I promise you, you'll be inspired by our conversation today. Pastor Edsel B. Cadet is the pastor of the Cambridge SDA Church in Massachusetts, which is part of the Northeastern Conference. Edsel is a graduate of the Andrews University Theological Seminary, and he's currently pursuing a master's in clinical mental health counseling with a concentration in couples and family therapy with an emphasis in African and Caribbean mental health. Pastor Cadet is married to his best friend, the former Nayasha Bonisi. He loves the Lord and wants to make a difference in people's lives. Join me in welcoming my friend, Pastor Edsel B. Cadet to the What A Word podcast. Pastor, welcome. Thanks, man. It's good to be on with you. I think I'll start off by asking, Pastor, I haven't checked in with uh, a lot of pastors uh, about their feelings and what they may have been going through since March to the present. So I wanted to ask you as a pastor of what I believe my research tells me is a pretty large church. What has pastoring been like during the pandemic? It has been full of... uh ups and downs, readjustments and pivoting, uh, I, just to list a few. So one, the initial response was just shock and fear. My birthday is in mid-March and I started hearing about how you know things were gonna shut down. And of course, the, the theories began to emerge that we were gonna run out of food and uh, everybody was gonna lose their job and the economy was gonna shut down. So there was a lot of uncertainty um, and as a pastor, I, you don't just experience that on a personal level, you also experience it on a communal level, thinking about what, what can you do for your members, how can you be prepared in order to help them meet their needs. Um, so I remember I was in New York at the time, and we were getting ready to celebrate my birthday, and I was like, I can't, like the stress and anxiety is just too much right now, uh, because we hadn't gone grocery shopping in Massachusetts. I live in Massachusetts, so we were in New York getting ready to celebrate. Uh, with my family there and my wife and I. And I said, I need to go to a grocery store. So we found like a local key food and we went in there and we took as much food as we could get, canned foods, things that would last us. And I was like, okay, <clears throat> once the trunk was full, I said, now we can <laughs> we can at least, you know, celebrate my birthday a little bit. Um, but that just goes to show the level of concern and, and 
fear that I had about not just the virus, but how it would impact people's lives. Um, so I'll be honest, there were days and there were evenings where I had nightmares because uh, there was just so much misinformation going around and, and I wasn't sure uh, how things would unfold. Uh, but over some time, you know, we pivoted pretty well. We already had an online presence and that presence expanded um, and our audience has grown from there. Um, I have been able to, the good that has come with it is, you know, I've been able to reclaim my Sabbath rest. Um, prior to the pandemic, I hadn't had a Sabbath nap in about seven years. And I personally, I just believe that Sabbath naps are better than any other kind of naps. You can have a nap on a Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. Nothing is better than a Sabbath nap for me. Uh, so getting that back is nice, uh, being able to rest in that way. Um, but some of the challenges have been, you know, the lack of community, seeing my church members experience that, um, trying to hold that together in the middle of a pandemic is challenging. Uh, I think one of the toughest parts is I have members who have been hospitalized and who have passed, and I haven't been able to see them uh, the way that I normally would have. So uh, loneliness is really running rampant in our community. And I have a member right now who's in the hospital. I can't go see him. You know, I have a member who passed yesterday, uh, no, Friday, sorry. And I was only able to see him once before uh, he passed. So that's been very, very, very difficult doing funerals and people grieving and mourning uh, without being able to have the community support that we would typically have in difficult times. That's been rough. So it's it's been mixed where, yes, I'm getting more rest in, in on Sabbaths, but the, the care and the crises that take place, they're a little bit uh, more acute uh, during the week. So it's been a lot to navigate. And you serve not only with the backdrop of a health pandemic, but for people of color, we also experienced what is termed a racial pandemic as well, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How was it ministering against that backdrop? It's always hard. It's always hard because as a pastor, I feel very deeply the responsibility to speak from a place of, of being whole or being healed uh, so that my, my wounds don't bleed on the congregation, right? Um, so that's always hard because when things happen, I have an expectation and I believe my congregation also has an expectation that, that my ministry would be relevant to what's going on in society. Uh, the challenge though, is that when something happens, I, have, I feel the pressure to process much faster than everybody else. Because everybody else, you process and you get to hear, you don't necessarily have to say something responsible, right? And the truth is that after George Floyd was killed, I was angry, right? But can I get in front of my church and speak solely from that, that place of anger? Yes, I can express anger, right? Um, but, but there's a greater responsibility that's been assigned to me. So uh, with the racial and social unrest, uh, with just the blatant acts of discrimination and prejudice, it's been so very difficult, not only to see it, but also to have to rush myself through a process of feeling angry, feeling sad and going through shock and being tired and frustrated that we're still having these conversations and we're still having to address this, um, compounded by uh, 
you know, the fact that sometimes in religious circles, there's such an emphasis on being heavenly minded that we're not earthly good and having to deal with that amongst our own people. Uh, it's, it's been frustrating. It's been saddening. And, and I, I, I think I might even be coming a little numb to the whole process just because it's such a regular onslaught of bad news and uh, racial prejudice. Um, and the person we have in the White House now just adding fuel to the fire. Sometimes it's just too much to engage. And there are times where I just have to retreat and pull back. Sobering, sobering. And you touched on it a little bit, but you minister to, and I want to ask you about your processing preparing to share the word, et cetera, because you're speaking to individuals who by and large, many have an unbiblical view of God. Uh, some have experienced trauma. There's others who deal with insecurities. Some are dealing with forgiveness issues and you have to prepare for so many different groups of people. What is the process like as a pastor who has members or visitors with all these needs Ooh. what is that like you're asking pastor? for the sermonic the, the planning the, the, the preparation <laughs> wow oh man it is such it's so different like there are certain things that are, that are regular every week but then there are aspects that are that are just different it's it's very much if you watch if you watch any cooking show where the chef is given ingredients that they're not expecting, but then they've got to make something work, right? They have a framework. They have an idea of, you know, how to use the stove and they have an idea of, you know, how, what, what ingredients may work well together, but they, when they're not always aware of what, what's going to be underneath the box of ingredients that, that, that they, that they unpack. Um, and I think that the sermonic, at least for me, the sermonic planning process and preparation process is very much like that, where, there are certain standards like study. I spend time in the word regularly. I spend time um, listening to other sermons and getting ideas on you know, how things are delivered. Uh, even some of the shows, movies, or comedians I watch, they're very informative in how to deliver information um, in an impactful way. So these are things that I take a look at and I study that those are not necessarily on a week to week basis, but they form a foundation about how to communicate effectively. Uh, but in the sermonic process, definitely, I spend a lot of time in the word, but I spend a lot of time listening. Um, and by listening, I, I mean, I, I have an eye on the news. I, I'm aware of what's happening socially and what's happening on social media and what the trends are. Um, but also, when I'm speaking to members, I'm hearing prevalent themes. I'm hearing prevalent concerns. Uh, I'm hearing, uh, issues that just keep on rising to the top that are indicating to me, okay, these are things that may need to be addressed. But even as I hear them, I have to put them to the side and say, okay, now, God, with everything I'm seeing in society, with everything I'm seeing from my members, from everything I'm seeing in the word, what do you want to say now? So it's like, I, you're juggling all of these thoughts and concepts and saying, okay, Lord, now you speak. Um, so a lot of time listening is spent really in silence and just listening for the Lord, um, not necessarily to speak audibly, but to put an impression upon my heart 
to say this is the direction to walk in or to study in and to look into. Um, so a lot of it, you know, they say that a good sermon takes about 18 hours of sermon preparation um, a week, but not all 18 hours are in are in the writing phase. Sometimes it's just in the uh, working through your own personal stuff. Sometimes it's, it's taking in uh, what's going on around you. Um, so I try, it's tough because right after the sermon is done on a Saturday morning or Saturday afternoon, the clock begins ticking on the next message, right? It, there isn't a lot of time to say, okay, well, you know, I have this much time ahead. Um, what's been helping me has been preaching in series uh, because then I have the whole theme that I'm working through and uh, sometimes I'll plan at least the central aspect of a message weeks in advance. So right now I'm in the middle of a series called Cancel Culture. Um, and this is reflective of the fact that in our society, we we're developing a cancel culture where if somebody messes up, we cancel them, like they're done. We no longer support their, their business. We no longer frequent whatever, uh, uh, pro whatever they pro whatever that they produce, they, they're canceled. Um, and I began to think about what is it in our society, what is it in our world that God wants to cancel? Um, and how, what will he cancel through a prophetic lens? So we've been looking at Daniel and Revelation and seeing that the different things that God is going to cancel, how God is going to cancel anxiety, and God is going to cancel fear, and God is going to cancel doubt, and God is going to cancel death. Yesterday, we looked at God canceling suffering. Um, so we're looking at cancel culture from the perspective of God and knowing that the prophecies that, that we find in the scriptures actually speak to the end of the things in our society, the things in our world that plague us. Uh, so that's been a fun series. We've been in it since November. Uh, so we've been really spending our time there uh, looking at prophecy through a cancel culture lens, um, just so that we can find hope in the word of God. Uh, so that's that's a bit of the sermonic process. That That series hit me in a span of about two days, and I was able to say, okay, I'm going to focus on Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8, Revelation 4, Revelation 5, Revelation 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, um, Revelation 13, Revelation 20, 21. So I was searching through the scriptures to see, to look at the prophecies and to find what is God canceling when he shares this prophecy? Well, what hope is he showing us? And what does that hope cancel out? Um, and that's been a fun, fun series. We're going to bring it to a close in a few weeks. Um, but preaching from themes allows me to plan way in advance, which has been very helpful with my schedule lately. Now, I, I, I made some assumptions, and um, I like to say my, res my research team uh, did some research. <laughs> you better have a research team. <laughs> when it's just me, you know. But, <laughs> but um. I may be making some assumptions here, but I pulled an article in preparation for our conversation okay. entitled The Eight Strengths of an Introverted Pastor. Mercy. With, without making any assumptions, they identified some character traits, um, calm, thoughtful, focused, attentive, insightful, loyal, self-motivated, and um, serving. And without going on a limb, I wanted to ask you, Pastor, because I've never asked you this question. Do you consider yourself to be an introvert? I am an introvert. <laughs> I am an introvert. <laughs> I have people, I have in fact, one of my really good friends, Oga Chukushi, uh, 
she debates with me all the time. She says, I'm not an introvert. And I'm like, no, I am. I perform well in public. You know, I know how to navigate. But I assure you that drive home after a weekend at church, I am exhausted. Like I've got nothing left. I define introvert. I define myself as an introvert because I get my energy, my strength from being alone, not with being people, not with being with people. I have to rev myself up when I know I'm about to see somebody, I'm about to hang out with people. I have to get ready for that. And I engage fully, but afterwards I, I've got nothing left. So that's a wonderful article. I'd love to share it. If you could send that over to me, that's it's so affirming. Yeah. But yeah, I, yeah, man. I'll, I'll shoot it to you after we're done for sure. Sounds good. Sounds good. So against that backdrop and what you've admitted, how difficult was ministry for you? Was it something you naturally gravitated towards or did you feel pushed into ministry? Uh, I felt pushed into ministry, um, not by anybody in my life. <laughs> Nobody was expecting it, including myself. Um, but I remember there were just certain significant life events where I... I felt just this deep responsibility to help people around me, to help them grow spiritually. Uh, a friend of mine passed away at a young age and I just looked around at the youth of my church and I said, how many of us really have a relationship with Jesus? How many of us are just church attendees? And I felt like I have a responsibility. I have to do something to help people get to know Jesus better. Um, and that turned into a ministry that would take place on Friday nights that, that grew and that impacted the youth in my area. And I started getting calls to preach and I started to sense like there might be something here, but I was I had my own plans. Um, I was at Stony Brook University, wanted to go to law school. I was majoring in English. I was a few weeks, months away from taking the LSAT. I was I had a plan and I felt this tugging and I was resisting because I was like looking at the church world, my perception of it at the time. And the, the life of a pastor, it, it wasn't one to be desirable. Uh, I saw a lot of conflict, a lot of politics in church. Uh, I learned what the salary was. And I was like, mm -mm, none, none of this is appealing to me. Uh, so I was on the run. Um, but I remember I, I organized a bus to go down to a youth event in Louisville, Louisville, Kentucky. And I just saw ministry in a scope and in a way that I'd never seen before. It was just so very well organized, well thought out. It was intentional. It was impactful. I saw young people uh, putting their degrees and on and and their their plans on hold in order to go to mission work. And I was just so touched and inspired. And I saw what ministry could be beyond what I had experienced growing up. Um, so I accepted the call during that event, and you know, not everybody was happy about it because. I had already taken the LSATs. I was waiting for my scores to come back. I, you know, I'd done fairly well. I was ready to roll. And I just knew like this wasn't it. In fact, I remember the bus, I, or I organized a bus that drove down from New York to uh, Louisville, Kentucky. And there were four attorneys on my bus. I was 22 at the time. There were four attorneys on my bus and they shared their stories with me. Every single one shared this deep conviction that they felt like there was that, that there was supposed to be something else that they should be doing with their lives. And I, I saw myself, I was 22 years old and I said, I'm gonna wake up one day, if I head down this path, I'm gonna wake up one day full of regret, thinking that I should have done something else. And I said, I can't let that happen. So yeah, I accepted the call and I haven't looked back, no regrets. Um, there have been some tough times, but they've been full of growth and, and full of blessings. 
would you say that pastoral ministry has forced extroverted expectations on you as a pastor? Oh, 100%. <laughs> yes, the extroverted expectations abound, right? Uh, because there are people have expectations of their pastor that their pastor would be present and and you know uh, in the church from the you know the time that they're in from the time that they leave. Uh, not everybody has that, but but it's there. I feel the pressure uh, to display a certain level of excitement and joy when I see people and it's real it's genuine I, I genuinely have and experience those emotions um it, there's just a difference in the level of energy I'm able to produce at 9 a.m and 9 p.m after a full day of being with people um so it's you know it can be challenging uh, there are times where I need to rest I need I need time alone but the demands of my schedule, the, the the emergencies that are arising just don't allow for that sometimes. So um, the pandemic has actually given me a little bit more alone time than usual. So I've been taking advantage of that to just rest and recharge on a regular basis. We will return after a short break. Traveling Nice Experiences is here to help you create new memories one experience at a time. Contact Traveling Nice Experiences at TravelingNiceExperiences.com. That's the word traveling, N-E-S-E-Experiences.com to book your summer 2021 travel. They are ready to help you create your next memorable experience. Doc, you and I have spoken prior to recording about the comparisons, um, black men who wear glasses and are, Afri you know, African-American men who wear glasses are often compared to other African-American men with glasses. Um, and you have, from what I have learned, been compared um, many times to S Sterling Brown, also known as Randall mm -hmm. Pearson on this. Mm -hmm. uh, for many people, he represents He's the personification of the black emo male. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> never heard that categorization before. Uh -huh. But, um, and I, I've spoken to a good, a mutual friend of ours, Dr. Tiffany Lewin, and um, she has moments of disdain for Randall. Um, but I think, I think in all honesty, <laughs> I think the writing for Randall this season has come full circle. Mm -hmm. Randall has now reached a place, and he said it. Um, I'll I'll, I'll use the quote. Um, this is a conversation he had with Kate. Uh -huh. He says, "If I make things better for you, then where does that leave me? Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, but I can't do that. That has been my pattern all my life, and honestly, Kate, it is exhausting." I'm exhausted. What are your feelings about where Randall is in this season? This is against the backdrop of seeing, I think, Kay, Toby, they're now allies of the movement. And we have flashbacks of young Randall watching protest, and he's all alone in the room by himself. And by his indication, he, he never had the opportunities to share 
what he was experiencing as a black kid with with his family. Right. Talk to us right. about Randall, your comparisons, uh, and where you believe the writers have taken him in this season. There's so much there. First, I want to say, I, I once went into an Applebee's um, about a few years ago, and there were women there at the counter who literally, they asked me if I was if I was Sterling K. Brown. Like, so the, the I have close friends and even family who, who call me Randall or who call me Sterling. Uh, I hope to meet him one day. I think it'd be very interesting. Um, and I think it's so funny that you mentioned that Tiffany Llewellyn has disdain for Randall um, because Randall and I are so alike and Tiffany and I get into it on a regular basis. Like we're good friends, but still like we don't always see eye to eye. And we have had conversations about Randall before. Um, I love the categorization you 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 found for him, uh, where he is the I guess personification of black emo male. Uh, never heard that before, but I I do know that for a long time I didn't understand what people saw in me until I saw Randall. Um, there because that that I guess genre of black male. Um, doesn't get a lot of airplay, doesn't have a lot of expression, um, public that doesn't get a lot of space for public expression where we're able to see this as a modality or a way for uh, Black men to carry and to express themselves. Uh, it is countercultural to what is typically put on the screen. So I knew that I had certain strengths and qualities, but I'd never seen it pulled together a package in such a way where I was like, ah, that's somebody that I relate to very much. So when I finally saw him on screen, I said, oh, there's, there's something here that is so deeply familiar uh, that I was, I was stuck. I, there was no way I could, have, I could have not watched it. I remember I saw the very first advertisement for This Is Us and I said, I need to watch this. There's something here that's calling to me. And uh, yeah, Randall Pearson, his growth, it, it's very scary <laughs> when I look at his life. And I look at the script. Um, I, I wasn't adopted. I wasn't raised, you know, in you know, in a with a white family, but by a white family. However, um, there's just so much in his development that I can relate to. This this point where he is now in the season, where he 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 can no longer sacrifice himself. He has grown to the point where he will no longer sacrifice himself in order to care for the well-being of others is a transition and, and a growth that I had to experience in silence. Um, it's something that I learned in seminary after some really rough situations where I had a, a similar pattern where, you know, I was stepping in to save and to help. And I, I still have, you know, a heightened sensitivity towards people who are in distress or who are in pain. Um, what was difficult for me to figure out and to navigate is that a lot of the skills and qualities I've developed, um, whether it's, you know, being insightful or perceptive or intuitive or uh, a good listener and a good helper, these are things that are applauded in pastoral ministry but the place that it was coming from for me personally wasn't the healthiest place. So it took some good friends and some tough experiences for me to realize I have a pattern here that's not healthy. And that while it's applauded on stage, it is detrimental in other aspects of my life, namely my personal relationships. 
uh, not that those are bad qualities, but the way that they were being expressed and what they were doing to me personally, um, it, I was finding myself drawn to toxic situations um, in order to, you know, step in and save the day in order to soothe my own personal ego. Um, so you see that with Randall where he's always stepping in, he's always helping out mom and it gives him a sense of worth and a sense of value. Fixer. Uh, I, I'm sorry? The fixer. Exactly. He's a fixer, right? Um, very, And I'm very much a fixer as well. I'm a, I, I'm a fixer in recovery. So I, I love where he is. I can relate. I'm grateful that these are things that I've learned uh, prior to entering into ministry full-time or before, you know, it could have really gotten bad in ministry the way it's gotten bad for Randall uh, in his life at times. But uh, I totally relate. And I, I so appreciate the, the fact that there's a Randall on television because um, I know that I'm not the only person like me who can look at him and relate and and see a version of themselves that um, can inspire growth and healing. And what's sobering about this, and you've highlighted Randall being a fixer and his default is to accommodate, mm -hmm. you know, dealing with, you know, visualizing the Randalls on TV is just how much people of color uh, have to accommodate others, even when we are in pain. Right. Um, you know, you'll get that call. Are you okay? If you do get right. it, and many of us never got a call from the allies. Mm -hmm. Are you okay? But in an effort to uh, make the guilt go away, right. I'm okay. Or we may shrug off what we may be experiencing. Exactly. And I wanted you to touch on that for me, Pastor, in light of, and you said it, uh, every time we thought we'd seen it all, we had uh, just a few days ago, the insurrection at the Capitol. Another thing Black people yeah. are dealing with and how do we have this conversation at work? Mm -hmm. uh, okay, so let me frame the question then. For, for believers who are tired, who are frustrated, who no longer feel like engaging mm -hmm. uh, in the discussion, do we find mm -hmm. ourselves... Um, at a paradox with this emotional calculus where we have no more energy. Are Christians required to make mm. others feel better, to get along? Mm. <laughs> Such a good question. Such a good question. There's a text I love in the book of Mark um, where Jesus is, he's just performed some, some miracles. It's Mark chapter one. Uh, let me see if I can find it and pull it up for you. Okay. So yes, uh, you're, you're pointing out something that we have to deal with and it, it's, it can be very exhausting, especially when you have you know, a white ally reach out and they might be well-intentioned. They may not know uh, the depth or the levels that we're experiencing or even the depths or the levels of why they're calling or reaching out. Sometimes it, it's for them to be affirmed as I'm not one of them, right? Um, and we, we feel the need, especially as Christians, to serve and to be there. Um, and I think Randall just depicts, you know, setting up a proper boundary that many of us, we suffer from not being able to set up or not, not being willing to set up uh, or feeling guilt about setting up that boundary so that even when we're trying to rest, it's not real rest because it's full of anxiety, it's full of worry, it's full of strain as we wonder, should I be doing something else? Um, and it's interesting how even as Seventh-day Adventists who have such an emphasis on rest, 
uh, we don't know how to rest well emotionally. We put so much of our rest on a day um, and we've set that, side, that, that day aside and we do a whole lot of work on that day for the church. Um, but one thing that, that gives me balance as a Christian, as a pastor, um, as a human being, is when I look at Mark 1, uh, verses 35 to about 38, yes, to 38, uh, Mark 1, Jesus, uh, his ministry is rolling. People are looking all over the place for him because he is, he's healing, he's teaching, his, his fame is, is, uh, is growing exponentially. Um, verse 35, it says, very, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. So he went off to be by himself. He got away from the crowds, right? Verse 36, it says, Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. And that's such uh, a, a, a tempting appeal, right? Everybody's looking for you, right? Everybody is looking for your content. Everybody's looking for what you produce or everybody needs something from you. And we can be driven either by ego or by uh, by guilt to say, okay, if these people are counting on me, if these people are, are depending on me, I have to be there for them. Uh, but I love the permission Jesus gives us to not be at the disposal of everyone all the time. Uh, Jesus replies in verse 38, 38 and he says, um, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So Jesus hears, look, people are looking for you. He's come to earth to be the Messiah. And he says, no, I am not going to be subject to your approval uh, or disapproval in, in how I manage my time and how I manage my life. I know that you want something from me. I know that you feel you need something from me, but I'm not just here for you. Like, I'm leaving and I'm going somewhere else. I want to minister to other people. Um, first, we see one, he's resting. He's in a solitary place. He's having some time alone. And then two, he is not driven by the expectations and the demands of the crowd. And I just want to give other people permission, the same way Randall set up that boundary, the same way Jesus set up his boundaries. We can set up our own. We don't have to be there for everybody all the time. I'm not advocating selfishness or self-centeredness, but I'm advocating self-awareness where we recognize our limits and we say, no, I have to come aside and rest a while. And we can give people the room to walk on their own two feet to figure it out on their own, to not always have to rely on us to be a crutch for their either white fragility or for their, um, their challenges uh, in presenting in that day and in that time. Um, I think sometimes we're so afraid to let people stand on their own um, that we overcorrect. I think we're so afraid to sometimes leave people on the side of the road and not be the good Samaritan that we overcorrect. And now we end up on the side of the road ourselves needing a good Samaritan because we haven't been good stewards of not only our physical health, but also our mental and emotional health. What a word, what a word. And it's against this that your bio leads us into your new direction. Mm. Um, Randall, obviously, without any help, to navigate as a child is now dealing with uh, what we would call debilitating anxiety, which informs his adult life. Mm -hmm. And you now are indicating uh, your pursuit of a master's in clinical mental health counseling, mm -hmm. 
was this a natural progression in light of what you've seen with our people and our unaddressed social, emotional needs? Yes. In some ways, yes. In some ways, it's personal for me. Uh, I went to therapy for the first time when I was in seminary and I was resistant. You know, all of the stigmas attached to going to see a counselor and, and, and seeing a therapist, they were all in me and, and, and dwelling there very comfortably. Um, but I had several friends who had gone and came back with some great testimonies. Um, and I remember before I graduated, about a year before I graduated, I said to myself, you know, I'm pretty high performing. If somebody gives me something to do, I can get it done. I'll figure it out, I'll figure it out. I'll network, I'll Google search. We're gonna find a way to get it done. And I began to wonder whether or not my ability to perform was covering um, issues that might not present as readily as other people's issues. And I had learned that most of our issues and challenges come out in relationships. You know, as we relate to other people, that's where they manifest. And I didn't want to begin pastoring a church. And as I'm relating to my members and relating to people, my issues are now being revealed. And they're being revealed in a context that's one very public, in a context where I am more powerful than others, and um, in a context where I might not have uh, access to therapy the way that I had it in seminary, where it was paid for in my tuition. So I said, you know what? Let me go see a therapist. And I remember my first day, I sat down and I said, look, I don't think I need to be here. I think I'm fine, but I don't want to wait a few years from now and discover that I missed something. So I think I have a responsibility to, to check under the hood and make sure everything's okay. I'm so grateful for the experience because everything was not okay. There were so many things that needed to be worked on, issues that needed to be addressed, things that I didn't see clearly because like I mentioned before, some of my challenges and issues were garbed in ministry. They were the things that people said amen for. So I couldn't fathom that those very same skills, talents, and gifts had shadow weaknesses where they were uh, casting a shadow on other aspects of my life, um, if not managed or handled in, in, an, in an appropriate or mature way. So uh, that experience really left a mark with me because I, I, I saw that in spite of my theological training, in spite of the depth of knowledge I had from the word, there was personal and internal work that needed to be done so that I could more effectively apply what I had learned from the word to myself and to my heart. There were hidden, when the Bible says uh, that the heart of man is exceedingly wicked, who can know it? Um, therapy can help you know it a little bit better uh, so that you can confess those things. So that helped tremendously. And then like you pointed out, um, working in and serving a community of, you know, uh, Black people, I see the level of trauma. And I also experience the limitations of my ministry where I'm able to help people. You know, I can pray with you. We can have Bible studies and we can gain this intellectual process, this intellectual knowledge that helps us to better process life. Um, but then I would run into issues that are not just spiritual. There, there, there's a mental health aspect that's attached to it. There's an anxiety that's attached to it. There is uh, a trauma that is, help, that is hindering people from getting to where they want to get to, from, from fulfilling their full potential. 
So I saw that as good as preaching can be and as good as prayer can be and as good as programming can be, as good as pathfinders can be, all of these things, they're good, they're good things. Um, but the same way we don't substitute uh, our taking care of our physical health for church, we shouldn't physically substitute taking care of our mental health for church as well. Uh, the two can work together. Um, so I had several experiences where I saw, I, I was able to help people make progress, but the goal line was still out of reach um, because of traumas and because of anxieties and because of mental health issues. Um, so again, I, I wanted to step in and share that the experience and the healing I had experienced with others. Um, and I know that for a lot of our communities, you know, having access to mental health support is, can be sometimes financially, uh, it can be financially troubling, it can be financially uh, challenging. And then also other people also have the stigma. So I said, you know, with the platform I have as a pastor, I have an opportunity to share with people who might not listen to a therapist, but who would listen to their pastor when the pastor says you should see a therapist. Um, so I'm loving it. I'm in my second semester now and I'm learning so much. I'm seeing so many connections between uh, mental health and, and what the Bible already teaches. There are several, several times I'm in class and I'm like, this is a biblical principle. Like I can show you the verse right now <laughs> where Jesus talks about this. <laughs> um, and this isn't to say, look, if you know your Bible, then you don't need therapy. No, no, no. But uh, it is to say that mental health and scripture are not in conflict. They, they, they work together. 74 million individuals approximately voted for our current president. Um, and we discussed the allies, we discussed uh, how we can navigate. And we've discussed this is us, but I wanna talk about this is America. Mercy. How you speak to young adults who are pretty much at a place where they don't know whether they can move hearts anymore. What can you say to, um, and obviously you cover many groups, but for those of us who are in a place of disenchantment where we don't know whether there's any hope for reconciliation and progress against the backdrop of Sabbath rest and social justice. Um, <laughs> what, can you just, what can you say to those of us who are in that place where we are reasonably feeling hopeless about racial healing in America. So this is one of those areas, I'll be honest, I haven't processed it well. I, I, I don't know that I have a, a pastoral answer for you because I think that the chasm is wide and widening. Um, I think that the aspect that we're not discussing regarding the racial gap in America, the racial uh, uh, prejudice in America is the misinformation that's happening. Um, huh, man, that's such a big question. And I, I, I don't have a good answer because I feel that hopelessness. Um, when I, I just watched um, this Netflix movie called The Social Dilemma that just shows how people are, even online, we're, we're in silos. We're, we're segregated even online where our news feeds and our Facebook feeds and our social media feeds are reflective of 
uh, biases and perspectives that are not based in truth many times, um, especially if you're uh, of a political certain political persuasion, right? Uh, where we can count votes and still you're like, no, the election was stolen. And I think, I don't think that there can be reconciliation without truth. And because truth is in critical condition right now, and I'm not sure it's gonna make a recovery. I think that uh, reconciliation is, is even farther out of reach than it has been in past generations. Um, because before, you know, Martin Luther King and other activists, they were intentional that as they demonstrate and as the world saw what was happening, that there would be a conviction of hearts. Uh, that tool has been lost to us because people can still watch George Floyd on the on the ground for eight minutes and 46 seconds. They can still watch the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th. They can still watch uh, the injustice that takes place time after time. And whereas in generations past, their hearts may have been convicted by what they saw, now they turn back to their uh, news sources that masquerade as, as real news and it spins and they look at the insurrectionists and say no that's antifa and black lives matter how how do we get that so when, when i see the death of truth that is uh upon us in this postmodern age i see reconciliation slipping farther and farther away and it's not a perspective I want to hold as a Christian or as a pastor. I I I live on hope. You know, hope is is part of my trade, and I see it slipping away. Um, I don't know what it's going to take to wake us up because we the, the the situations continue to escalate, the crises continue to escalate, and we continue to not respond. And I I think we are very much in a Laodicean mindset where uh we don't have a real sense of reality the issue with laodicea is that they believe that they're rich and increasing good with need of nothing right but the reality was that they had a very deep need um so that shows that their sense of reality was completely distorted and i think that that's where we are and i think that this political climate is setting the stage for prophecy to be fulfilled um when we talk about and we see in revelation 13 uh deception uh, that would run rampant. Um, Revelation 13 talks about, uh, you know, people being killed if they don't take the mark of the beast or people being, uh, 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 not being able to buy or sell. Th those are, those are things that are not congruent with democracy. And then when I see a democracy flailing, uh, how do we have hope? I think only in Jesus that he will touch hearts. Um, but I think the sad truth is that a lot of people will still reject the word of God, will still reject the principles of Christ. Um, and I don't know that we're gonna see a reconciliation on a mass scale in the way that we've hoped for in generations past. Sobering, sobering. And pastor in our, you know, and, and we are church boys, so I'm hoping our listeners can connect to many of these stories and themes. And I believe they will. Um, you've given us a lot of gems, a lot of nuggets already. I wanted to ask you, though, in terms of your hopefulness, uh, there was a, a part in the lesson study last week where 
Isaiah was told to go and see Ahaz and bring his son along. And my wife and I were unpacking the bringing of your son to the meeting part and the import and relevance for us today in terms of our hopefulness. What do you believe young people can bring? And I've seen it online in terms of, you know, Adventists with social justice and the Black Lives Matter movement, the engagement of young people who, notwithstanding uh, what it looks like, are advocating, are affirming, are, you know, are, are pushing forward. What role in terms of bringing young people to the table? You were talking about our church, the world, et cetera. What, where do you see hopefulness tied to the involvement and the bringing to the table of young people? <laughs> I'm processing that. I'm wondering if I still have hope there. I, I might just be in a bad place right now. <laughs> that, that's the truth. Um, <clears throat> okay, I can say this. I think the hope is that I think that our young people are more socially savvy and do not fall, hopefully do not fall for misinformation as readily as others. I see young people getting involved in activism, not only around issues of race, but also issues around the environment and stepping into these spaces where they're not afraid to have these conversations. They're not afraid to confront their parents. Um, the level of white fragility is a little bit less uh, fragile amongst them a little bit, but it's, it's, it's less fragile, which gives us an opportunity to have a conversation about what's, what's going on without them withdrawing. Um, and I think that there's an opportunity to connect and to have real conversations and to move forward. Uh, the, the challenge I think that our young people are going to face is moving from social media activism to true activism. Uh, to running for political office, uh, to holding positions of power where we're able to influence change and doing so in a way where we are not beholden to the power brokers, right? When I look at uh, Alexandra Casio-Cortez, who isn't beholden to the hedge funds and beholden to uh, the people who would typically fund a campaign and she's able to start a grassroots movement that gets her elected, I find hope there because I think through our social media connections, we can build similar grassroots movements that are able to compete with and combat and even win um, elections and, and hold places of power um, where we can operate with integrity uh, so that we are not beholden to uh, the political perspectives and persuasions of uh, corporations and conglomerates. So, I think that there's hope to build real community for our young people uh, to move beyond the segregation of our society as we connect online. I just hope that we continue to trend in this direction. And perhaps, Pastor, as you've touched, maybe there's um, something to be said for what Stacey Abrams did with her own disenchantment and disillusionment exactly. as well getting so many people registered. So notwithstanding, you know, there is this 
there is some indications there that there's stuff that we can do and uh, people who are laying the framework and example for us. Definitely, well. definitely. So I think- What are your thoughts on Abrams, man, Stacy? Oh man, she's a hero. Um, after <laughs> losing the, gubernator, the gubernatorial election in her state and not losing any vim or vigor and taking on the next challenge, like I think that's such an incredible part of her story. It's not just uh, the fact that she helped organize the the victory, the election victories for uh, Pastor Warnock and uh, Asaf, but it was after a major political defeat that she was not dissuaded and just kept on pressing and kept on pushing. Um, if Marvel makes a new hero, Stacey Abrams should be it. Um, because you know, heroes typically have that 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 journey where like they they exert sure. this loss and then they rise from the ashes. And um she she has done so in uh in amazing fashion. So uh I'm completely uh caught up and in awe of how she leads. I'm excited to see what the future holds for her. Listeners should know Pastor Edsel Cadet is the pastor of the Cambridge SDA Church. Uh, he's currently uh, pursuing a master's in clinical mental health counseling. Uh, pastor, any social media pages you want listeners to know about? If not, I'll take this part out of the interview. If you're not a big follow me on social media no, person, uh, but if go ahead. <laughs> no. <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, you can follow me on Instagram, Edsel B. Cadet. Uh, you can find me on Facebook, uh, Edsel Cadet. Um, Twitter, I'm kind of active there. Uh, there are some really great pages I would encourage you to follow. Uh, there's a new page that just started called Therapy and Theology uh, that has been started mm. by a friend of mine who's also getting his master's in clinical mental health counseling, who's also a pastor. I'm excited to see where that page goes. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm an advocate for making sure that your social media feed is one that is nourishing, that, that helps you because we can kind of binge on such distressing images um, and it can it can cause some vicarious trauma for ourselves. So, um, you know, anything that you find that's helpful and that's strengthening and that's um, encouraging, definitely make sure that that's a regular part of your social media diet. And if listeners want to connect to your church and the services, how would they? Oh, it? yes. You can find my church on Instagram at uh, Cambridge SDA. Um, also, you can find us on YouTube. We're live streaming our services. Uh, you can find us on YouTube or find us on Facebook. Look for Cambridge SDA US, United States. Uh, there's a Cambridge SDA in another country, in another country. But go ahead and find us on YouTube. Find us on Facebook. Uh, we stream our services every Saturday at 11 p at 11 a.m. Eastern, uh, and we have a good time together. Doc, thank you so much. I was honored. I know Sundays for most pastors is the reset day, and I thank you so much for coming on. Your transparency uh, inspired me, and I'm sure our listeners will be inspired as well. Um, thank you so much, Pastor Cadet, for joining me on the Water Word podcast. Thanks for having me, man. You're great at what you do, and I'm excited to see what the future holds. Thank you. Thank you so much, man. Honored. Honored to have you as a guest. Thanks. You will be told that this is not a problem, not your problem. 
will be told that now is not the time for change to begin, told that we cannot win. But the point of protest isn't winning, it's holding fast to the promise of freedom, even when fast victory is not promised, meaning we cannot stand up to police if we cannot cease policing our own imagination, convincing our communities that this won't work before the work has even begun, that this can wait when we've already waited out a thousand suns. By now, we understand that white supremacy and the despair it demands are as destructive as any disease. So when you're told that your rage is reactionary, remember that rage is our right. It teaches us it is time to fight in the face of injustice. Not only is anger natural, but necessary because it helps carry us to our destination. Our goal has never been revenge, just restoration, not dominance, just dignity, not fear, just freedom, just justice. Whether we prevail is determined not by all the challenges that are present, but by all the change that is possible. And though we be unstoppable, if we ever feel like we might fail, if we be fatigued and frail when our fire can no longer be fueled by fury, we will be fortified by this faith found in the vow the anthem, all black lives matter no matter what. Black lives are worth living, worth defending, worth every struggle. We must stand up for all of us in our aims, united through protest and pain, amplifying women, the LGBTQ community, and people with disabilities, because none of us are free until all of us break our chains. We owe it to the fallen to fight, but we owe it to ourselves to never stay kneeling when the day calls us to stand. Together, we envision a land that is liberated, not lawless. We create a future that is free, not flawless over and over again and again we will stride up every mountainside magnanimous and modest we will be protected and served by a force that is honored and honest this is more than protest it's a promise